Hello and welcome back to another episode of Only a Notebook. I am your host, Nathaniel Melor. And as with all of my podcast episodes, I do believe that you, you know, everyone should take them with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't mean to say that any of them are untrue or that uh, the information I'm giving you is false or um, questionable. I just simply mean like, um, you know, don't go to a dinner party and repeat it unless you've also looked it up and you're very confident in it. Uh, for instance, in the last episode, I was talking about um, sort of these rules that we we follow in the English language that come from, uh, each of them come from one person. They're not like set down by God. They're not, um, you know, there, there's no hard and fast rules somebody set. They were um, on at different times, on different occasions, three people had a preference uh, and they wrote down their preference. Um, and then over the course of time, these preferences became um, hard and fast rules, status quos, like the uh, I think we you know, talked about fewer versus less, ending a sentence with a preposition and not splitting the infinitive. There are many rules like these. Uh, these are just three examples that are, are famous. Uh, they're popular. And today I want to talk about men writing women. I mentioned this in the last episode, and it is based off of the uh, subreddit, Men Writing Women, um, which is a subreddit sort of devoted to, um, it's not also so just men uh, writing women characters, it's just sort of... Um, writers uh, creating women characters, female characters from uh, what is considered like the male gaze, um, which is kind of a it's, a, it's an art term more than anything else, I think. Maybe it's now a society, societal term, um, but I do believe it was an art term for a while. Maybe it was societal and then it turned into an art term, um, but essentially just means sexualizing for, for, for by and large. It just means um, looking at people as sexual objects rather than people. Uh, which is something that happens often um, with everyone. I mean, with, I think, you know, with everyone, it's a sort of um, something that a lot of people tend to fall into, whether or not it's uh, on accident or on purpose or, you know, it, I mean, it's just sometimes it's just, you know, uh, cultural and whatnot. Um, but any kind of, any writer can fall into this. Any writer can fall into this um, um, writing uh, from the male gaze, or as they say on Reddit, you know, men writing women. Um, and the reason I wanted to do this episode is um, because actually I recorded a video about this about a year and a half ago, um, and it was just when I started uh, really getting into beta reading and editing. It's just I was getting a lot of jobs. Uh, I was getting a lot of good reviews. I was getting a lot of really in, good, in, like, a lot of interest, um, and uh, finally making money, which is, you know, really exciting for somebody who had really not been making money with this um, line of work. Um, and I had a job, and I... Uh, basically one of, one of my, um, you know, it was, it was at a time also when I was trying to offer these very quick turnaround times. So I basically, you know, I'd read your book in three days, you know, um, doesn't matter the length, I'll read it in three days and I'll provide you with a, uh, um, a couple pages of feedback, five pages of feedback. Um, and, um, I think, uh, when, when somebody submitted their book to me, I read it and I submitted them the feedback and they were sort of frustrated at the, the, the feedback um, they were frustrated that it was, you know, I would get, was give this feedback so quickly and it wasn't very quick. It was, you know, two and a half days. And I'm like, I was about to go to bed. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm not going to do it the next morning. Uh, we were, we were six hour time different. So I didn't want to miss the deadline and then be penalized by Fiverr. Um, and so I, I did it the night before and, uh, he had a lot of, uh, issues with my feedback, which most of it centered around um, his description and his creation of if his uh, female characters, his women characters. Um, and because they were all there, 
um, none of them basically furthered the story. None of them, none of them advanced the story in any way. None of them fleshed out the story. Uh, they were simply there as sexual objects, and it was kind of like um, I think we've all read books where it. it um, for instance, I don't know if any one of you uh, have read the if you've ever read the King uh, King Killer Chronicles, uh, Name of the Wind and uh, the Wise Men's Fear. Um, I, I first read the the Name of the Wind I think when I was in like junior year of high school maybe. Uh, and then Wise Men's Fear, you know, around that time soon after that, um, because I believe the Wise Men's Fear was already out when I read Name of the Wind. Uh, and this was like, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. So we've been waiting for Doors of Stone for a while. Um, and if you ever read the book, it's I'm, I recall basically being very, very good on the first read. I was I was like, ah, I love this series. And I went back a couple years later and I was like, it's good, but not as good. And I went back like a year ago, year and a half ago. And I realized it kind of reads like... Um, this guy's fantasy, you know, which is, I think, what a lot of, I think a lot of writers create their own fantasy, right? That's kind of what we, um, I think what we as writers do is we sort of, um, we take a, a, a situation and we say, what if, and we want to, we want to enter into a fantasy that we created. Uh, and I don't mean sexual fantasy or anything like that. I just mean, you know, fantasy, that fantasy stories typically are like, you know, um, I mean, his is simply, what if this guy had to go to school and pay student loans, but also there was magic, uh, and that's kind of a lot of his book is his main character uh, struggling to pay back student loans um, to a loan shark. Uh, and it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a joke, obviously. Not, not um, that part, I guess, isn't a joke, but it's the community of, of the people who like that book. It's just sort of like the ongoing joke is just like, you know, student loans and other magic. Um, but when you read the book, again, I kind of think like as uh, after a couple of times and it's sort of the, that sort of rose tinted glasses sort of fall off, then you realize essentially it's like, you know, it's this um, middle-aged guy write a, who wrote a book about a young kid who's amazing at magic. He's amazing at um, a, a musician. You know, he plays uh, the lute, I believe. Uh, he's amazing at all these things, uh, except women. He's terrible at women, except like in the second book, it's all of a sudden he becomes this godlike lover. Um, and then he's also very good at martial arts because there's this, you know, society of people who, who sort of practice martial arts, but you know, with a sword. Um, and then it's just like, you know, this guy's unstoppable with everything. He could play music and he could make magic and he could fight and he could have sex and all sorts of things. Um, and then it kind of just reads like, oh, this is a bit like, um, you know, this is kind of just a bit of fantasy, you know, but a bit like just sort of the writer's just like, what if I was perfect is sort of what it reads like. Um, because you know, it's uh, the, the, the main drawbacks of this character are not big enough to counteract the fact that he has all this sort of power for lack of a better word. Uh, I mean, in a narrative way, uh, he's overpowered in a, in a narrative way. Um, and that's something that, you know, going back to this men writing women, um, and going back to the book that I had received on Fiverr to beta read, it was a little bit just like, oh, you've created your own fantasy, but this time it wasn't a sexual way. You just sort of like, you know, what if I end up at this island with all these women? And so I kind of explained like, you know, none of, you know, these women that you, you, um, I think he sent it to me basically saying like, these are powerful women characters. And I'm like, but none of them really powerful. None of them had any, um, of their own agency. Uh, which means, you know, um, they didn't act on their own sort of uh, strength, their own knowledge, their own free will. Um, they they served um, to help somebody else. And on that sort of, there's a note, there's that the, the Bechdel test or Bech, Bechdel test, Bechdel test, um, which is just, you know, uh, in your in your story, in your book, in your movie, in your short story, your two women, if you have two women characters and they talk to each other, um, do they talk about anything besides another man? And I think this is something, if you're ever interested in this, it's fascinating to go back through TV shows and movies up until like the mid 2000, 2010s, like 2014, 15, 16. It's sort of when there's a, sh a shift 
Uh, but a lot of TV shows, even from like the early 2000s, which I guess, you know, I was younger in the early 2000s. Uh, well, not that young. But, um, you know, I, I guess my, my recollection is is obviously different from childhood as from adulthood. Um, but I realize I go back and I watch these TV shows and these movies. And there's a, there's a heavy dose of, of toxic masculinity in um, some of these shows. Um, and there's a heavy dose of this sort of, um, you know, this is what men do, but there's also this dose of like, there's never a time where two women characters are talking to each other, um, about something that's not another man. And it's really fascinating, um, because it is a, it's sort of like, do they, you know, it's like, it's just a failure to understand that, um, women don't exist to sort of further your own, you being the writer, um, your own sort of narrative. Uh, and that is something I explained to this, you know, this writer. And I was just, you know, very clear. I'm like, here's some things you could do to ch- fix or change it. Or here's some, you know, vice, this and that. Uh, like, all in all, I think it's a good story. I think it's a great premise. I think your ending is great. I, there was a couple of the things that were, you know, that needed changing. Um, but I'm like, it's a fine story. Um, but here's just some thoughts because it does, you know, it's not great. Um, and then from then, that was the first story. And uh, he left a, you know, bad review. Um, and from then, you know, that I started noticing that with every fifth book or sixth book, it seemed like it was, um, uh, like, oh, this is you know, a failure to create a, um, a woman character. Um, and not necessarily even a positive woman character. I don't mean, you know, like, I think some people are like, oh, they have to be good. I'm like, oh, no, they, they could be evil. They could be bad. They could be the villain. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just, they have to be believable. They have to be an honest, uh, well-written, well-rounded um, believable character. They have to have, um, their own reason for existing basically. Um, and, and that goes, I think with almost any character you create, they can't just exist, um, because of somebody else. Because I mean, thinking of it in real life is, although yes, you were brought into this world by your parents, um, by your mother, you don't, you know, you, you exist with your own, again, using this word agency, you exist with your own, um, beliefs and thoughts and hopes and dreams and, and power and um, your own strengths and weaknesses, and you, be, you know, in your own f- everything. Um, and so if somebody you know, were to take that away, and, uh, and it happens often, obviously, you know, we, we sort of either attach ourselves to these other people, um, whether in a fanatical sense, whether in a religious sense, whether in a uh, job sense, um, you know, we, le- we kind of let our uh, parts of our agency or parts of our own sort of free will be taken. And it's often in exchange for things, you know, money or housing, um, uh, you know, the food, um, important things. Um, but it's still sort of that struggle to find, like, how do I, how do I exist in this world as a human being, as a person, um, but also, uh, able to help people, but without being subservient to people. Um, and so this, the first, you know, the, the, basically I think the, 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 the beginning of all this, uh, would be talking about the history, um, and not my own personal history, but actual history. Uh, I want to kind of bring us back basically 3,000 years ago, maybe 2,800 years ago. Um, we're going back to about 800 BC. And uh, again, I don't I want to stress, this is all this is all to create a conversation. Um, it's it, A lot of this, the podcast, and even when I was doing the videos, it's kind of like I have these ideas while I'm writing or while I'm editing people's stuff. Um, and a lot of times it just helps to talk about them. Um, I mean, I would talk about them to myself, and then I was like, oh, maybe I should you know, make podcasts. I, I don't love hearing this out of my own voice maybe, but, um, uh, not that you do, but, uh, simply they think that it's, is might be interesting to start conversations around these things rather than, uh, ignoring them. Or sometimes I think it, um, uh, the, the issue can be that when, uh, a conversation is attempted to be started or someone does try to start a conversation, it is often seen as aggressive 
or it's often seen as you should change what you're doing because you're wrong um, rather than just simply like, okay, well, let's take a look at what you're doing because maybe, maybe, um, you know, what's common has, the common way of talking has changed or maybe um, social practices have changed or maybe we look at each other differently or maybe whatever it is. Um, so it's never to basically say one person is wrong or right. And I think that's the thing I, that I learned a lot when I was writing, when I was beta reading is um, I went into it with a certain set of like, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And I think it was very difficult because my job isn't ever to tell somebody whether they're right or wrong. And I did tell, I think I touched on this in a um, um, previous episode, uh, episode about becoming a beta reader. Um, I do often read stuff from people that I don't agree with, uh, whether it be politically, I'll read something about, you know, a, a political manuscript or political nonfiction thing. Um, whether it's about, um, you know, I mean, often, oftentimes actually it's fictional uh, and it's not necessarily political, but just whatever. We have different beliefs on certain things, but it's never my job to step in and say, well, that's not true. Um, I mean, if it's information and if it's, um, uh, not arguable information, so just, you know, if they have like the distance between two cities wrong, you know, obviously I step in and explain like that, you know, I did a little Google search, that's not correct. Um, or if they mistaken a name of country. Um, but by and large, it's not, I think it's like, I kind of view it the same way as, as I guess, photo, uh, journalists and even photojournalists are supposed to be. It's like, you're never supposed to interfere. You're just supposed to be there to document. Um, I'm not, I guess I'm not there to shape it to my uh, the way I view the world, I'm there to help you find your, the clearest way for you to see the world. Um, and so that's why, like, I mean, a lot of this kind of comes back to is like, I, um, I have to sort of learn how to constantly have to sort of learn how to, um, you know, when somebody does is sort of really derogatory in their things to, you know, be like, what part of this can I offer feedback on as a professional, as a beta reader? And what kind of, what part of this is, them, um, you know, what part of this is them as a writer and what part of them is this character is supposed to be this way? Uh, and, and what can I offer feedback? And sometimes I, I simply do I ex explain that, you know, um, this book or this uh, nonfiction book isn't um, good, not good, but um, not a good thing. It's not a it's not a it's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. And I, I don't want to be part of its uh, creation. You know, I'd, I'd prefer to not um, you know, edit it, or I'd prefer to not beta read it, or I'd prefer to not be a part of its, um, you know, uh, basically creation into something better, because I'm like, I don't really, it's, you know, this is really bad. Um, this isn't just kind of bad. This is truly bad. Um, so I, I'd prefer not to read it. And, you know, I'm like, here's your money back. Um, that doesn't happen very often, because I, you know, I do think people aren't terrible by and large. Um, but sometimes I, I don't, you know, I don't love to, to edit and beta read people's books that I'm, uh, that uh, the intent is to hurt um, someone else or some group of people. So the first thing, like I mentioned, is going back in time and and about um, 2,800 years ago, maybe 3,000 years ago. Um, and what I want to talk about um, is the myth of Pandora. Um, this is kind of where this is kind of where the the idea of men writing women starts for me. Um, is this the myth of Pandora? And if you don't know the myth of Pandora, um, Pandora had a box. Uh, she opened the box and the evils were released into the world and hope remains in the box. Um, this is the, the really common, this is a very common story of like, where do you get all the evils? It comes from, uh, Pandora's box. Um, and I guess right away, you know, I should go ahead and mention that, um, 
the word box is actually a, mistrans a 16th century mistranslation um, of a word that means pithos, which is a clay, uh, a ceramic clay urn uh, that's used to hold olive oil. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Italy or, or Greece or any really Mediterranean country. Uh, a lot of these houses still have these uh, in the entryway is where it typically is. Um, they'll have these massive clay uh, ceramic urns um, that are about four feet high, three feet wide, and they hold olive oil. And it used to be that, you know, uh, up until like the 90s, the mid 80s, the 90s, you'd buy your olive oil by um, the tens of the decaliter, I guess, the tens of liters. Um, so they, somebody would come by and give you whatever it is, 100 liters, and it would fill up your, your pithos, uh, your urn, um, and that would be your olive oil. And that's the same thing. So that's what Pandora had opened. It had a little lid on top. And so she opens the lid, and these evils fly out. So going back to this 800 BC time period, um, you, you have the time of Hesiod and Homer, and Hesiod, H-E-S-I-O-D. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. I do apologize if it's wrong. Um, and Homer. And um, if you if you know anything about Greek mythology, then you'll know that a lot of our Greek mythology comes from these few people, Aesop, Hesiod, Homer, a couple others, and a lot of not only our knowledge of Greek mythology, but a lot of our knowledge of sort of day-to-day Greek life comes from um, their stories, just the way they would write about life, politics, or transportation, or art, or movement, or music, or food. Uh, and the food, food is a big one, too, if it's like, you know, you could see what they're mentioning. If they're mentioning dates or sugar um, or what it might be, then you can tell, like, oh, if they've had this thing, then there's a really good chance they would have traded with these people. There's a really good chance they would have, um, maybe they would have domesticated something. Um, so, of, of course, you know, these people are, are fantastic for figuring out how things were back then. Um, but I actually want to focus on Hesiod because he has the sort of individual pleasure of being the uh, oldest known source of the story of Pandora, uh, the myth of Pandora. And it's not to say it's the oldest one at all. Uh, and the way we know this is because when uh, she first appeared in his work, um, I think his early work was called Theogony, and it's T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y, um, and he referred to Pandora by her and she, but never actually by name Pandora, uh, in a similar way that today we might, you know, um, I mean, it, not to go super religious with this, but if you're going to refer to the devil, you don't actually have to say devil. You could say, you know, the snake or the serpent, the this, the that, or he shall not be named, if you want to talk about Voldemort, I guess, actually, um, not the devil. But we have in our own language a lot of ways to refer to people um, without having to refer to them by name. Um, and it's the same then. So, you know, we know from his story, Theogony, that he was referring to uh, Pandora. But not just that. We can also tell that because he doesn't refer to her by name, uh, but he references her, we we can tell that the readers understood who she was at this point. Um, and we we get this idea that she, had, she was a character that we knew well at this point. Um, and it wasn't actually until his later work, uh, I believe it's called Works and Days, that he actually uses her name, Pandora. Um, and he is the, the first, uh, like I mentioned, um, known source of this story. And what's a little bit interesting about this gentleman is that his, um, his contemporaries, um, noted that he hated life, um, uh, that he really absolutely despised life and living. And, um, more than that, he hated women. Uh, he did not like women at all. He thought, you know, he was he was much very much a misogynist, and in fact, the word in English misogynist or misogyny comes from the ancient Greek word, um, and it's very similarly pronounced misogynia. 
misogynia. I don't know. You might have to look that up. I don't actually know. The, please don't kill me on the pronunciation here. Um, so our, our, but our ancient, our word for, for misogyny is, is ancient, very old. Um, and you know, which I feel like speaks volumes sometimes, um, or often, um, but we have, so basically the first story of Pandora that we have comes from about somebody who hated life and who hated women. Um, and it's not until about 200 years ago today, you know, about 1800s or so, that um, we rediscovered or discovered one of Aesop's fables. Um, and it's a little bit, it was a little bit interesting because in this fable, he actually had a different story. Um, rather than opening this urn, this pithos, and releasing um, sort of the terrible, terrible things into the world, uh, which... Again, kind of depending um, who you ask, it's it's different stuff, um, but it's pain and hurt and depression and things like that. I mean, it's these like generic, terrible things. Um, but she released good things like trust and and mercy and goodwill, um, which is a very different way of viewing her, which is a very different way of viewing this person or this character. Uh, like all of a sudden, she isn't the person who saddled us with pain and heartache and heartbreak, uh, but she's the person who who gave us the tools to solve it. Um, and and I actually want to talk now a little bit about translations, um, and not too much because you know you could really go all day with this. I mean, there are many, many, many versions of the story out there, um, and there are many ways of interpreting the story. I mean, especially when you're talking about a language that old, and um, not just a language that old, because we you know we can translate it pretty well um but it's also what you miss is these sort of um uh the context you know with with any translation you gen you, you miss the context you you miss if it's a joke or not you miss if it's tongue-in-cheek you miss whatever it is and it, it can be difficult um so i want to talk about interpretations just briefly because i'm not qualified to talk about it for any longer than briefly <clears throat> um but the first kind of question that people do ask is um and if you you know maybe hearing this sort of story maybe for the first time you'll you'll um you'll wonder you know what like if, if you're like me it might be difficult to understand like so wait she opens this jar releases bad things into the world but not the good thing so she's just a terrible person that why not release the good thing into the world that doesn't make sense is um you know so what is this jar is it a prison because that was this that was the idea this is a prison she opened the prison but only kept hope in the prison um and then but also what does the jar symbolize is it the world, you know, I mean, some thoughts were like that she releases them from the world. She actually removes um, greed and betrayal and evil from the world. And it goes back to, you know, Tartarus or Olympus, wherever these things came from. And the things we're left with are just facsimiles of greed, just facsimiles of pain and betrayal and heartache and things like that. And not the actual true um, emotion because we maybe were not able to grow with that true emotion inside of us. Um, and again, it's like, you know, maybe was it a prison? Was she, you know, letting them run rampant through the world? Was she letting them run wild through the world? And then if so, again, why was hope in the jar? Um, is it just because that she wanted to punish the world, but then not give them hope, which is strange because we have hope. We know what hope is. So if she had done that, then we, by definition, would not have hope. So that, that sort of theory does fall through. Um, but I realized what I found when I was looking through those, cause I was just really curious that uh, ancient Greeks had, uh, I believe, I believe um, two different words for hope or one word with two different meanings, and I cannot remember which one it was, and I apologize. Um, but basically, wh when you look at the word hope, uh, it can mean the expectation of good, right? When you, I really hope this thing happens, you're expecting a good thing to happen, or you're, you're putting your faith in the fact that a good thing will happen. 
Um, but the ancient Greeks had the reverse definition as well, the expectation or belief of or faith in the bad thing that will happen. Um, it's sort of like the other food, uh, the other shoe is going to drop. Um, and it kind of brings up that question of like, you know, as, as, a, as a person, as a society, as a city, as a country, how do you grow when you're constantly afraid of the other shoe dropping? How do you build a, a ship? Because if you, if you do, you're constantly afraid of drowning. You're constantly afraid of sharks. You're constantly afraid of waves. Um, you know, how do you, how do you cook with fire? How do you use fire if you're afraid of fire, if you're afraid of being burned? How do you, I mean, how do you do anything? How do you create the wheel if you're afraid of the wheel, if you're afraid of movement, if you're afraid of what's going to happen? Um, and I mean, I, it's interesting because some of this really does exist actually still in, um, in Europe mostly. And, and only, I only say, and maybe in, all of the world, but a lot of my experiences is with Europe. Um, uh, for instance, the English have that expression, you know, it's the hope that kills you. Um, but in here in Southern Italy, where I'm currently living, there's is like, um, there's a sort of really depressing notion or sensation that there's no use in doing anything because nothing really matters. And it's not fatalist. It's not like nihilist. It's more of just what's the purpose in doing anything? Um, what's, you know, what are you going to do? And it's just sort of like, it's as, and, and I think especially because Southern Italy, uh, when I really started looking at the history of Southern Italy, speaking of histories, um, you know, it's a, it's a sort of people that have never been wealthy. Um, they've never had much. And then they've constantly been conquered. Um, and then the very few times they had a chance to fight back, um, they were tricked or swindled or um, in, you know, some other subterfuge way, they lost their chance to fight back. So they never, ever actually had that chance. Um, and that's why if... Um, if you are uh, Italian or Italian descent living in America, there's a there's a decent chance that you are from the South, uh, which is you know anywhere basically south of Rome, uh, and not 100 obviously, but a lot of Southerners left simply because it was, um, you know, they were dying. I mean, there was there's nothing here, um, and it had been you know, basically the will of the people sort of been ground into dust. Uh, and anytime I hear about this ancient Greek word, this expectation of of bad, expectation of evil, that's all I can think of is here is like. You know, it still exists. Um, it's still a thing. There's another, though, translation of Pandora's box, uh, Pandora's pithos, uh, meaning maybe it's a pantry. Um, maybe, you know, because going back to Aesop's thing, maybe she didn't, you know, she released these good things into the world. Um, you know, but then actually, if I, if I may take one quick step back, um, if it is a prison and she released good things into the world, then why were these good things imprisoned? And who imprisoned them? And if they are good things, why didn't she release hope? as well as the rest of these good things. Um, you know, that's what's, what's the, and again, going back to the thing of it's the world and she released these good things from the world. Is, did hope remain in the world, but none of the other good stuff? So we only have these, you know, the facsimile of mercy and the facsimile of, of um, anything good, basically, of trust, of goodwill. Um, and so again, sorry, now going forward, if it is a pantry, maybe it's just ingredients to be taken. Maybe it's... Um, you know, it, it's uh, there's a, there's a thought that maybe Pandora released these sort of evil things into the world to see how we cope because you have to be pushed, you have to be uncomfortable to create, uh, and I mean this as a writer, as an artist, or as anything. But you know, you don't build a boat if you're comfortable where you are, right? You build a boat because you want to leave, you want to see what the other side of the ocean holds, see what the other side of the sea holds. Same thing with the wheel, same thing with fire. You don't, you know, cook with fire if you're completely complacent with raw food. You cook with fire because you are fed up and tired with raw food. Um, so it's like maybe, you know, Pandora releases these evils into the world to sort of push us to our 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 maximum, you know, to push us forward and to see what happens. Um, but she releases, she leaves hope in the jar in case we need it later, in case we cannot uh, cope 
by our own, but we will need hope later. Um, or if it's good things, perhaps she releases these good things into the world to give us an advantage. You know, maybe there was evil already in the world. Maybe there was darkness and there was no light until she released um, these good things. But then she kept hope in the jar in case we need a little extra push some point later um, down the line. Now, Pandora was married to someone named uh, Epimetheus. Uh, and again, probably mistranslating this or mispronouncing this. Uh, and Epimetheus is... Um, the brother of Prometheus. And in most stories, he's the brother of Prometheus. And in most stories, uh, he's also the one given the, the jar, given the pithos, given the, uh, the box. Um, and it is Pandora who ended up opening the jar. Um, and to some of you, this already might sound super familiar um, because it wasn't until a few hundred years later, depending on uh, whichever um, you know, a source you, you choose to you know, believe or line up, um, but it wasn't until a few hundred years that the book of Genesis comes along with Adam and Eve. Uh, and that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope part, uh, some part of this was at least entertaining uh, and interesting. Um, and again, I hope that this helps start a conversation with uh, how we are creating our characters uh, in, in real life and how we create uh, and how we interact with the world in our real life. Uh, thank you again for listening, and I hope to see you in the next episode.